Hello, and welcome to our podcast, In the World, hosted by me, Rick Robinson, and brought to you by Billups. Today, we are going to address a very unique question. What impact does out-of-home have on the general public, and why should they care? And our guest, Chaucer Barnes, is, is the perfect guy to really talk about this topic and unpack it a little bit. Chaucer and I worked together when he was at Wyden and Kennedy. We did quite a bit of out of home. At that time, he started calling it in the world. And, you know, Chaucer's an agency guy, a media guy, a cultural observer. And his role right now as chief marketing officer at Translation in New York is all about using music as a cultural unifier. So welcome to the podcast, Chaucer. And how are you doing today in New York City? Doing great. Glad to be had. So just kicking it off. Why should the general public care about out-of-home media? I don't think they have any choice, right? It's incursive. It's in their lives, whether they like it or not, unlike a lot of other media formats, right? I mean, I I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, and for the most part, they are not exposed to anything that they don't choose themselves, right? I mean, I don't just mean advertising media. I mean, any media whatsoever. They are completely on the hook for the music that they consume, for the video that they consume, for the pictures that they see that they have to search for. And I, I think when you're in the world and you're confronted with all types of other media formats, right, whether it's a movie poster or anything else, you're forced to have to navigate the world with all of these messages and experiences in it. And so as a result of the consumer not being able to opt out or the user, the human not being able to opt out, I think it's of you know, premier importance to us all. It's what world do we want to live in? Right. It's part of our daily lives. As we go down the street and navigate space, out of home is in that mix. And as you say, we really don't have a choice. Yeah. And it seems to me that every other kind of consumptive activity that we do, we have a lot more onus and a lot more choice. And and as a result, I think the, the standard has to be higher. So there's a higher sense of obligation and duty for not only the suppliers of out of home, but the brands that engage in it? For sure. So what I want to do is just unpack this phrase in the world. You know, that's something that you shared with me going back a few years ago when I was thinking about starting this podcast. I didn't want to use the word out or out of home or billboard in the title. So I I decided to kind of hijack your phrase, ITW, in the world and use it for the, the name of what we're doing here, this podcast. Can you share like why you came up with that phrase? Like why in the world? Where did that come from? First of all, I think phrases kind of collect a lot of baggage and metadata. And, and sometimes it's very hard to shake that metadata. And so sometimes you just have to start fresh, right? So I think that's why it was a good idea for you as somebody who I respect in this space, who's thinking about it more broadly than 30 sheets and billboards and posters and, and wild, dedicated wild posting sites to have some new vocabulary. But I also think, you know, for me internally as an agency guy, as a guy who's responsible for teams answering briefs and so, so, so on and so forth, I feel like in the world really centers the human experience in a way that out of home doesn't. And maybe it's because of all of that associated baggage, but you know, when you're in the world, you're in discovery mode, you're, you're primed to be alert, you're primed to patterns that exist and patterns that are being broken and it's just a completely different kind of context in which to find yourself. And, and with that comes a different uh, kind of posture toward what could be 
either a message or an opportunity or a utility uh, that I think, especially from the creative side and from the creative ideation side, people overlook when they say out of home uh, and their mind immediately kind of, you know, pictures all of these kind of dedicated spaces. But the work I did with you, you know, I remember calling you one time and wanting to dig holes in the sidewalk and create little tunnels to hell that people could see through. I think if you, you know, if you look at a, if you say in the world, you're more likely to come up with an idea that, you know, has an AR layer on a floor mat that you can lay in front of any hotel as opposed to just buying a wallscape. Sure, sure. I mean, what's interesting here is that you're 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 looking at the phrase out of home as a descriptor of inventory sets, right? It's it's clinical. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And that's useful while useful in a descriptive way, in a planning way, it's not very emotive. It maybe limits what the possibilities are. And looking at it as a human experience, and I think that's really the takeaway for our audience is to look at out of home as more than just billboards and signage. To look at out of home as a human experience and one that's more powerful when the medium and the message earns its right to occupy public space. That's really well put. How does out of home media's impact differ from other media forms? Look, I think um, a lot of what we were talking about before, which is that it, in a lot of ways, out of home is inescapable in a way that other media formats aren't. I think it's one of the last kind of horizons of concurrence, right? So people experience the format in such a way where it's, it's, there's no way you can walk away from this experience feeling like it was personalized or targeted or tailored just for you. And and so I think that that sense of permanence, even if it's for 30 day sprints, right? That sense of permanence, right? That a brand, for example, has something to say, and they're willing to say it to anybody who walks, you know, through this intersection or anybody who drives down this highway. I think there's a real contrast between that and all of the kind of digital derivations that we see, both in terms of kind of optimizing payload. So look, I got 50 different sweaters and I'm going to show you the right combination of colors and, and stitch work and whatnot until you buy this out of this Instagram feed. And I mean, you see it in so many other formats where brands get to kind of decide who they are and change the terms to change themselves. Mm -hmm. so, so let's back up on something. Chaucer, you mentioned earlier that the out-of-home experience created some sort of consensus or consensual experience. Concurrence, right? Concurrence. Yeah. Unpack that for us. What does that mean, concurrence? Concurrence is about multiple people experiencing the same thing at the same time and being mm -hmm. knowledgeable about that, right? So when we watch the Super Bowl, we're having a concurrent experience. We, we feel like we're sharing that with a lot of people. When we watch, you know always sunny on FX in, in our app, on our sofa, there's every reason to believe that, you know, the spot that I'm seeing in that, in that broadcast has nothing to do with what other people are seeing. It's not just because it's time shifted. It's because I don't have an assumption that other people are watching the same thing at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. And so concurrence is, we used to have a lot of it. I mean, when I got into the business on the media buying side, you could buy a, a couple of Monday night footballs and, you know, everybody could feel pretty much rest assured. You could rest assured that 40% of the population experienced something. And they had every reason to assume that a broad majority of people experienced it as well, right? And that's what leads to those water cooler moments. Think about this, right? We treat the Super Bowl as if, quote unquote, everybody saw it, but only a third of Americans watch the Super Bowl. But everybody feels confident the next day walking up and be like, oh, did you see the kid with the lightsaber and the Volkswagen thing? Literally, 
you know, a minority of us actually watch the broadcast, but we feel confident in the assumption that everybody did. And sure. across all media formats, that has just vaporized, right? The, the Super Bowl is the exception that proves the rule. And, you know, it used to be, you know, back in the days of kind of big hit digital media, you'd go to the New York Times homepage or the ESPN homepage, and you got to assume that whatever you were seeing, everybody who went to ESPN saw. And I feel like that that sense of I'm being exposed to what other people are being exposed to has gone away as our culture is atomized, as our media habits have atomized. So now is are you saying that out-of-home media by its one-to-many nature is one of the last vestige, vestiges of concurrence? Like, does it create this sensation? I'm saying that, and I would add to that that, that, that notion of, of permanence, right? So I, I think this is challenged a little bit by digitization, but the, the notion of, of permanence, right? This is going to be here for a minute, mm-hmm. and the brand isn't going to switch up, or, or the person giving me this message is not going to change their clothes when the next person walks by. So yeah, I think it's special in that regard. Given that out of home has a couple of unique qualities you've described here. The notion of permanence, which is anything beyond the refresh rate of Instagram, Mm -hmm. and the collective sentiment of concurrence that while I'm consuming this message, everybody around me is at the same time. How does out of home impact people in their community, whether it's specific to their neighborhood or just they're out and about in a city? Like how how does that impact them differently? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is there well, look, I think it, I think it can be positive. I'm prepared with an example thereof. So I, I approach it as, first of all, as a black man, right? You know, there, there's representation that can happen on a grand scale in out of home that doesn't happen anywhere else, right? And so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, one of the things, so one of my clients is AT&T. One of my partners, rather, is AT&T. And there's a campaign that we have in market right now that is built around area codes, right? And so we are celebrating the people, the places, the the things that make these area codes specific. And one of the, the key channels for this is out of home or, or in the world. I, I would say out of home for right now because it is a bunch of billboards. And so one of the things that you really have to negotiate is, is when you go into these communities that are often not courted by brands like AT&T or, or at all, and you pull the really credible kind of authentic keepers of the codes of those areas, right? And you put them on a big billboard, you are doing something that changes their relationship to the world that, that frankly, they are being pushed out of. And I mean that in the, in the very literal sense of gentrification, but I also mean that from just a pure share of voice standpoint. And I guess this goes back to this point about permanence, right? It's very rare that, look, every brand will go do a little digital thing with anybody, right? Because when it comes down to it, like you could sweep that under the rug. Every brand's not willing to put their arms around people from these communities, right? And so one of the big, are you familiar with the song later popularized by Destiny's Child, Say My Name? Sure, yes. Right, so it goes, say my name, say my name. When no one is around you, say, baby, I love you. If you ain't running game, say my name, say my name. What she's complaining about in that song is that the person she's talking to acts differently in public than in private. And so, you know, I think just answering for one small sliver, maybe not even small sliver of people and how they could be positively or negatively affected by the presence of out of home. I think identity and representation politics can play out on a massive scale in this way. And I've seen the, the fruit of that. And I've seen communities who felt like 
they were being kind of shouted out or pushed away or, or frankly, you know, robbed of their land, if you will, uh, have a really, really positive reaction to a brand that stake that restakes their claim to that physical space. In this case, all over New York, I've certainly seen it. Los Angeles, Atlanta, Chicago, et cetera. Right. Well, we talked about that. Look, the AT&T campaign in L.A., where it called out the 323 area code or the 213, that campaign was so much about territory and pride, right? And AT&T came out and made this. It was a very public statement. And you make an interesting point. What you say in private and what you say in public are often two different things. And you're right. They are. And even the, even the biggest, even the biggest type of most expensive inventory out there, it just it's starting to feel more and more private. Television, online video, you know, your your Instagram feed. Consumers know that these are very personalized experiences, and so you know the public versus private divide takes on a new dimension at that point when you're staking out physical space. It sure does, and it was very interesting how AT and T made this very public statement. Right, that we're in these neighborhoods, we recognize these neighborhoods, and we're going to do this so carefully that we would never put the three two three code message in the actual turf of two one three all the way down to the street corner, you know, and that and that was and trust me that the people in those neighborhoods would notice. Right? <laughs> they, they, did you guys miss a couple times? <laughs> they did notice. So by the way, for the couple of times where we got definitely got alerted and. To the brand's credit, move quickly to to address that. Right, and I guess I guess that's what happens when you're out in the world, right? You're out and about. It's it's a human experience, and they're going to give you feedback. Yeah, and it's and you know it's so funny because the feedback can come through the way that you you know everybody's running around worried about their sentiment score and what the comment string says and whatnot. But you you, you also have to just kind of listen to. The world as well, right? Like we would see, we would see commentary that was digital, but then we would we could also get signal from when people would call into the radio show. So completely different channel. We're having conversations on the radio about two one three and three two three and two one two versus seven one eight and stuff. And people would call into the radio station to talk about the out of home, right? So it's not always exactly where you look, but yeah, you can get checked in in the real world, which keeps us honest, hopefully. No doubt. And what happens is, is that since out of home is out in the public space, it becomes part of their conversation. You know, it's, it's becomes topical. And I think your, your point is, is very well put between permanence and the notion of concurrence uh, that, that amplifies those sentiments in in very strong ways. Speak to a little about context, how that impacts people in a different way and creates that human experience we call in the world. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people have really cracked it who are not advertisers and frankly advertisers have a lot to learn from the things that stop us in the world right so advertisers are on the hook to stop people on in their tracks to understand what is motivating them and that is no different than anything else that exists in the world so you're thinking to yourself as this big deal advertiser and and so you want to be in Times square i guess But you're forgetting that the people on the ground in Times Square wearing Elmo suits or painting themselves and walking around naked or dancing in the street or whatever are kind of duty bound to provide an experience that people are willing to stop for. Right. And there's a reason Mm -hmm. why they're not in Herald Square, because 
They understand something about the people that are in Times Square and what they're doing and what kinds of experiences they want to have that they put in their path. And, you know, I think that level of contextual, that level of contextual awareness, whether or not you're trying to do surprise and delight or whether or not you're trying to kind of fulfill ambitions that people already have, or you're trying to provide utility for, for needs that, that you know are unmet. I think all of those are really kind of creative diving boards that go underexplored again, because we call it out of home and because we think it's about billboards and, and wild posting sites. And we're making it about the inventory instead of about the people. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. So, so is, is there then this assumption that just because it's an existing piece of out of home inventory, that it's already earned its right to be there. And just by being there, everyone should look. Is that what you're getting at? That the, the medium has a certain amount of, um, I guess, almost arrogance in a way. Entitlement, maybe, is a better word. Entitlement, perhaps. I mean, I think when you see in real communities, when new pieces of inventory get turned over to either a different kind of bidder. So, for example, I'll, I'll tell you a story about something that was definitely a in-the-world social kind of campaign. And we tell it this way from the translation standpoint. So we work with the Brooklyn Nets. Brooklyn Nets want to be of Brooklyn, not just in Brooklyn, right? And so for years, they've been trying to create connectivity with the people of Brooklyn. And so one of the things that happened recently that seemingly had nothing to do with the Nets was a landlord in Bed-Stuy was going to do some improvements on his building that was going to endanger uh, um, a treasured mural of Notorious B.I.G. Sure. Immediately. Right. That's a landmark. It's part of the community. All those things. Public outrage. Right. <laughs> How landmark is part of community. Again, it, it stakes space. It speaks to permanence. It speaks to what, who belongs here, who's native here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Nets and all their largesse and I think smarts worked with us to work directly with the landlord to figure out some other way for him to be remunerated and preserve this you know, this kind of, this collective entitlement, that's a great moment. Okay. So then of course you layer on the kind of campaign elements, right? So you build the filters and you you geolocate the filters so that people can go around and see all of the biggie murals and take their picture in front of it and so on and so forth. I mean, we do all of that, but I think when you hear a story about a brand who's just a sports brand, who's just a venue that happens to be part of this community, you know, with their cape fluttering behind them, looking to save something that the community treasures and then get in the credit for that. I think you see, you know, people's level of permissions that people feel like uh, things that belong there should have and things that are alien there should not have. And I think out of home can live on either side of that divide. Sure. So this goes back to my next question then, because what, what happened there in Brooklyn was that this wasn't about the team or the arena or the venue. This, oh. this was about, history and culture, right? This, this yeah. was, that was, it was very tribal. This is about belonging. Yeah. It was about, yeah, belonging. you know, our community, this is our borough and, and we're going to take care of it and we're in it with you. So there was this collective moment, maybe a concurrent moment in terms of an ideal. But let's be clear. It's just about a wallscape, right? On, on, on the surface, it's just about a wallscape, but you know, deep down to your point, it's about all of the things you just mentioned. Absolutely. Sure. So, and, and that's what happens with out of home. And even though that wasn't a literal piece of functional commercial out of home, it's still an out of home message. It still was visuals on the side of a building out in public space. 
create all of this resonant emotional response. So this speaks to something. Now, this speaks to something, and it's very relevant to the phrase in the world. This out-of-home inventory, because it's in the world, because it creates a sense of permanence, because it's viewed in a concurrent way, and uh, because it's got this contextual, visceral uh, potential to it, does it need to earn its right to be there? Is that a fundamental requirement for out-of-home media and the messaging in it? You know, I don't think it does. I think it needs to, in order to be, you know, uh, to be anything other than litter. <laughs> and I think it, I think it has a unique opportunity to be something other than litter. Uh, but no, I mean, look, you, if you can afford to wallpaper things, you can afford to wallpaper things. And I, it, it can outrage some people. It can, you know, bore other people or just make them look away or not care. But I think, it, I think it's less the question of does it have to earn its right to exist to is it really living out its potential? And, that, that, and I think that has a lot to do with the kind of creativity on the other side, whether it's coming from brands or artists or architects or what have you, or, or real estate owners. Then do, do the brands have an extra responsibility as, uh, as messengers within that medium? Or is it, is it just all about opportunity? I mean, look, if they, if they want to achieve their objectives, if they want to achieve their objectives, I would say yes, you know? And look, I, I also think it's, look, it's got to be different, right? If you're McDonald's and, you know, you've got, or better yet, how about this? If you're a McDonald's franchise owner and you know you've got a patch of whatever, 85 South where you've got three McDonald's back to back and you throw up something and you got a Big Mac on a sign and it says exit 466, then so be it. You know, like hopefully that works for you. And hopefully some, you know, the picture to Big Mac triggers something in somebody's mind and they want the burger or whatever. Look, I think it's it's too difficult to try to boil down an entire format, especially one that is defined by, you know, our, our the literal kind of ends of the universe in the world and say that there's some kind of like right way to use it. But I do feel like we are shortchanging ourselves as a creative industry in the format by not thinking about it on these terms, by not thinking about it people first, by, you know, cons constricting our take on it to inventory that has already been kind of utilized for this purpose of give it to this guy for 30 days, give it to that guy for 30 days, et cetera. So no, I don't think it needs to mm -hmm. earn its right to exist. I think that if advertisers want to achieve their objectives, they're going to think much more creatively. And look, you, in a minute, you're going to be forced to, right? Because, how many, how many different ways can we read the story of all of the ways that we used to reach consumers and drive frequency and manage sentiment and do all these things are, you know, it's, it's, the, it's a whole new world. All right, Chaucer, thank you very much. Awesome response. Terrific conversation. I appreciate you being on the podcast and more to come. Heads up, eyes open out there in the world.